The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Even in, you know, occupied Donbass or in Russia proper, where the control over the information space is almost absolute, that doesn't necessarily equate to kind of broad-scale adoption of the predominant narratives uh, among the public. I'm Stephanie Pell, Senior Editor at Lawfare, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, January 27th, 2023. Russia's use of information warfare during the 2016 U.S. presidential election period focused attention on Russia's weaponization of information in its effort to influence a U.S. election outcome and so discord across the American public. But to the extent that we only view Russian information warfare as an aggressive or expansionist expression of Moscow's foreign policy, we may misunderstand some key tenets of Russian information warfare doctrine. To gain a better understanding of the history and dynamics of Russian information warfare, I sat down with Gavin Wild, Senior Fellow in the Technology and International Affairs Program at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace, and Justin Sherman, Non-Resident Fellow at the Atlantic Council's Cyber Statecraft Initiative. We discussed their new paper, No Water's Edge, Russia's Information War and Regime Security. We talked about Russian information doctrine under Vladimir Putin, the differences between how the concept of information security is understood in Russia versus the West, and some key takeaways of their research for analysts and policymakers. It's the Lawfare Podcast, January 27th. Gavin Wild and Justin Sherman on Russia's information war and regime security. Justin and Gavin, you've co-authored a new paper where you argue that Russia's information warfare is first and foremost an egocentric expression of systemic self-preservation that should be viewed through a domestic and regime security prism. We're going to unpack this argument throughout the discussion, but can you first talk about why you wrote the paper? What were you hoping to accomplish? Yeah, so for my part, I think I've long been frustrated both uh, inside and outside of government by how frequently I'd encountered folks in and around the national security space who tended to dismiss the Kremlin's conspiratorial view of information in any medium as either posturing or cynicism or just bluster aimed primarily against the U.S. or the West. 
And that kind of approach only picked up steam, obviously, after 2016. Uh, so as a longtime Russia watcher, both personally and professionally, I wanted to write something of a corrective to put Moscow's view of information and their behaviors in the information space into better context, hopefully to guide our expectations about dealing with them. And by taking kind of a retrospective look at how Soviet leaders have historically approached information, as well as what they emphasize in their policy and strategy documents since the end of the Cold War, Justin and I kind of aim to demonstrate how the Kremlin views its own role. And contrary to what we might assume as an increasingly aggressive or expansionist view of the world where information is weaponized to advance Russia's interests, what we tended to see instead was an almost pathological insecurity and defensive posture, or a siege, a siege mentality, if you will, a sense of fragility at, in the regime. And by that, I mean not just about the ruling circle of personalities, but the ideological underpinnings of the state. And that's why we conclude that while it can certainly service Moscow's foreign policy aspirations, information warfare has its roots and motivations far closer to home. All of these structural advantages that came about as a byproduct of the media and internet boom of the 1990s in the West are relatively easy for Moscow to paint as grand conspiracy designed to keep Russia down or as a scapegoat for their own governing failures. Putin and his circle have been spinning this tale for decades now, and this paper is our way of kind of telling policymakers, guys, to a large degree, they've actually come to believe it, and you need to factor for that. So how should we understand the concept of information warfare in this paper? What is the kind or scope of activity that it is meant to encompass? So our piece really zeroes in on the role of narratives and Moscow's assumptions about its own role as the guarantor over what it deems to be, quote unquote, sovereign information space. Information warfare certainly has specific connotations in Russian military thought and strategy on countering adversary technical systems on the one hand, so think cyber operations, and shaping adversary perceptions on the other. The phrase you tend to see in Russian language documents is information struggle, which gives you a sense of this ongoing, unending battle for both of these aspects, irrespective really of whether you're at peace or engaged in armed warfare. Uh, one way I've heard it put is bites and brains. I would say that in general, American strategic thought has tended to focus on the bites, the ones and zeros, while Russian strategic thought puts uh, special emphasis on the brains. Uh, so for the purposes of this paper, Justin and I really leaned into understanding the latter. So your paper takes us through quite a bit of history with respect to the development and expression of information warfare doctrine during the Soviet era and after the collapse of the Soviet Union. For those of us who are not students of Russian history, can you walk us through the most illuminating parts of Russian information warfare history? Prior to Vladimir Putin becoming president, are there key events or milestones that we should know about? Yeah, I think there are certainly several key historical inflection points that have accumulated to lend the Kremlin such a viscerally conspiratorial view of the information space. Of course, none of this is inevitable or deterministic, but Russian strategic culture stems from some fairly unique experiences. So for instance, after the revolution in 1917, Bolshevik leaders recognized their newfound power really depended on securing the hearts and minds, so to speak, 
of a massive population that at that time, with the exception of the aristocracy, was largely illiterate. So they undertook this effort to shape what they called the new Soviet man or the new Soviet person. And this meant propaganda didn't only extend to newspapers, posters, etc., but it was a pretty radical and experimental notion of molding an entire society through everything from education and art and literature, dance, film, sculpture, and music. And it was all encompassing and it was considered an existential imperative for the survival of the communist cause and certainly the ruling regime. The Soviet authorities exercised this degree of control over public perception fairly successfully for a number of decades. Now, fast forward to the mid to late 1980s, and you have the final Soviet leader, Mikhail Gorbachev, introducing this new era of openness, or what he called glasnost. But in many ways, this initiative backfires in ways that future Russian leaders like Vladimir Putin probably took note of. Because instead of fostering a newfound sense of trust and transparency, it kind of sets off this erosion of ideology that ultimately preceded the Soviet collapse a few years later. And this loss of national identity and kind of lack of a guiding mythology for the Russian people gives rise to a lot of conspiracy theorizing in the 1990s. And this humiliation at home, while the, the West is relatively ascendant during that same period, sparks what some commentators call the quote-unquote compensatory myth among Russian leaders. This idea that external forces deliberately conspired with domestic saboteurs and fifth columnists to bring about the demise of the Soviet Union. This really allows them to excuse or gloss over their own massive failings. Meanwhile, in the West and in the United States, the internet is in its infancy. The U.S. is fighting wars in the Persian Gulf and later in the Balkans, not only with superior technology, but with global cable news coverage that seems to be shaping the global narrative. Meanwhile, investigative journalism is really putting the spotlight on both how poorly Moscow is performing militarily against Chechen rebels and documenting clear war crimes by Russian officials there, and a battle for control over the domestic television coverage of President Boris Yeltsin later in the mid-90s really crystallizes for Russian officials how pivotal the media is in framing political issues. So when you view the information space through these lenses of experience, you can kind of see how Moscow developed this perfect storm of both supreme confidence in its ability to control perception on a grand scale, while also this deep sense of disorientation and aggrievement, which lends a pretty unhealthy approach to information writ large, AKA, you know, what I don't control is being wielded against me. And you can see that perspective made manifest in the propaganda and disinformation operations that it's carried out in recent years, which we describe as being as much a defense mechanism or a counteroffensive against a repeat of these revisionist histories as it is a expeditionary assault on the West. As tempting as it might be to think of RT, Sputnik, or the Internet Research Agency as making the world safe for autocracy, their real roots lie in keeping Russia safe from liberal democracy. So speaking of current times, let's turn our attention specifically to Russian information doctrine under Putin. You say in your paper that since Putin became president, there has been no single cohesive doctrine for information warfare. Instead, you say 
that the Russian government has published a series of information security doctrines, foreign policy concepts, military doctrines, and other policy and strategy documents that both set strategic and operational priorities for the Russian information apparatus and collectively lays out how the Kremlin thinks about information and the internet and competition and conflict within this space. How would you describe the various components of Russian thinking in the Putin era? So Vladimir Putin ascended to the Russian presidency at the end of 1999. And not to sort of repeat what Gavin had just said on the history, but it's important to remember that you know Putin, as many listeners know, uh, was a member of the KGB, uh, but grew up in this time when information really was at uh, at least one core piece of global sort of security and competition, right? You had this genuine uh, belief in the Soviet Union that any opposition was inherently illegitimate. You had these instrumentalist reasons to paint all of the opposition as foreign-directed, to say that anyone dissenting in the USSR is, you know, acting as uh, an agent of capitalism or, or, you know, a foreign uh, power. Um, And you also had real interference globally around the world. You had, you know, the US and the Soviet Union interfering in a number of elections and, and political processes around the world. So all to say Putin, I think, carries all of this with him when he ascends to the presidency. Uh, And so what you have then are a series of uh, national security documents and foreign policy concepts and other uh, important uh, policy stakes in the ground that lay out this vision of the information space, as the Russians call it, as this contested zone, as a place where states uh, you know, wage conflict with one another, where they compete with one another. Uh, and there have been many successive documents that have laid this out. So one of the major ones Putin signed shortly after coming into office in 2000. And this is the information security doctrine uh, of the uh, Russian Federation, which, you know, really did, at least in my mind, two main things. One is it said outright that Russia's national security substantially depends on securing information. So that's, that's the first key piece. And the second key thing that this 2000 doctrine did is it defined information security really, really broadly. It talked about the protection of national interests. It talked about uh, societal interests. It talked about uh, the state. Uh, And so it laid out this vision of essentially anything information related happening in Russia or happening in relation to Russia uh, is important to national security. And so over uh, the ensuing years in, in Putin's time and power, and I'm still counting when he's uh, prime minister and then uh, takes back over in 2011, 2012, you have other documents that sort of reinforce and ratchet up this view. You had uh, the 2000 foreign policy concept that said military power is really important in statecraft, in international conflict, but we're seeing information and economic power and scientific breakthroughs and other factors play a key role as well. So you saw this sort of shift in how 
the Russian foreign policy elite were thinking about information as a key part of modern conflict. But then as you go later and later in Putin's tenure, you see more conspiratorial and more paranoid sort of doctrines and visions take hold. Um, The 2015 national security strategy, uh, and I'm sure we'll talk more about Ukraine, used the word fascism uh, for the first time uh, in talking about the world. It had some paranoid elements around information being used to undermine Russia. Uh, In 2016, uh, Russia updated its 2000 information security doctrine. And in there, uh, it said explicitly that foreign countries are using uh, their tech sectors and information technology uh, and other innovations to enhance military operations, to destabilize Russia, to undermine Russia's sovereignty, to violate Russia's territorial integrity. So the list goes on, but we see you know, the same thread in some ways, concern about information, about the ability to control information. But as you get later in the Putin years, you see the language become more paranoid. You see references to you know, terrorism and destabilization. You see outright Russian documents calling out uh, the U.S. and Western tech sectors. So it, it really sort of underscores that that point Gavin mentioned about conspiratorialism and, and paranoia rife throughout this worldview. So you've definitely touched upon this, but you make the important point in your paper about the differences between the way Russia views information security and how we may understand infosec, so to speak, in the West. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah, this is that's a really important point to hit on. So when we talk about, uh, or rather when we use the phrase information security uh, in the West, it's used pretty synonymously, I would say, with cybersecurity. So it's a pretty technical term. It's, it's you know, referring to uh, the confidentiality, the integrity, and the availability, the CIA triad, uh, as it's called in cyber, although CIA in this context is maybe confusing. But, you know, it's referring to technical ways, right, to protect systems and networks and data. So, Right. I mean, many listeners will, will know this, right? People will use cybersecurity conference and information security conference interchangeably. They'll say information security, talking about encryption and firewalls and, and things of that nature. Russia uses information security really differently. And it's important, A, because that difference exists, but B, because actually a ton of Russian uh, sort of information warfare and information and internet thinking is rooted around this term, uh, information security. And when the Russians use that, they use that in reference to technical stuff, sure. It encompasses encryption, it encompasses firewalls. But they really use information security to talk about the security, quote unquote, of information broadly. And if that sounds like a ridiculously huge, perhaps even boundless, uh, as we uh, suggest in our paper title concept, that's because it kind of is. It, it literally in some of these doctrines is described as things like cultural stability, information stability, the state's ability to influence information, people's access to information in Russia, religious and moral values. 
it's all of these really uh, sort of abstract and broadly scoped uh, ideas that all fall under that uh, umbrella. So in practice, what does this mean? In practice, it means if the U.S. government is hacked, we would probably say cybersecurity, but you could say, you know, there was a compromise of U.S. information security here. If the Russian government goes online and sees anti-regime content on Facebook, or it sees a press release from the West or Western you know, media documentary covering corruption in Russia, they will say, this is an attack on Russian information security. Um, and so when we talk about sort of what does the US do? How do we think about this? That's a really important point is, you know, information security from the Kremlin's perspective encompasses even things like information that just criticizes uh, the regime, essentially. And Russia's much broader understanding and articulation of information security, it, it seems, at least as you argue, fits in to a broader interrogation and rearticulation of what national security and national power is meant to be in a 21st century information age from the Kremlin's perspective. Is, is that fair? That's definitely fair. I think these documents paint a picture of a Kremlin really pining for a bygone era where it had a great deal more ability to police the information space and filter out those narratives that cut against the reality they were trying to build. And I think what Justin and I suggest in this paper is that Russian disinformation and propaganda are something of a coping mechanism an acknowledgement that a more global information environment is tougher to subjugate. So where, you know, if, if I'm Putin, the idea would be where I can't shape reality to my liking, my best bet might just be to subvert it. Where I can't indoctrinate, I can at least confuse. It's a pale imitation, certainly, of the kind of mythical authority that the Soviet era portended, but there's a certain degree of power in this approach. Uh, so as with most strategies and policy documents, they're essentially statements of intent that really set the tone and agenda for the government and the national security bureaucracy. But there are several narrative arcs, if you will, that cut across these documents over the past two decades, as Justin says. One of them, I think, is, is about how Russia was essentially a bystander or a latecomer to these major advances in information and communication technologies. So if you think back during America's dot-com boom, Russia was really struggling to, to merely stay afloat economically and politically. So there's some wariness of dependency on foreign tech and some acknowledgement that Russia needs to do some catching up to be competitive. And so in that earlier period where these documents kind of touch on the need for economic development and innovation in the first two terms, as we get into Putin's second go at the presidency in 2012, they start to emphasize a lot more isolation and autarky. This is where the Kremlin really starts leaning on the government to implement so-called import substitution measures, where they're essentially saying, let's just make our own gear um, because we can trust it. So you, you also start seeing a more pronounced emphasis on protecting ideology, as Justin points out. Uh, that the 2021 national security strategy really comes out swinging against foreign tech companies uh, that Moscow claims are committing, quote unquote, psychological sabotage and distorting Russia's history and undermining its place in the world and its culture. Here's a cool fact. 
A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey, Lawfare listeners. Ben Wittes here. want to tell you about the first time I got a report from the folks at Delete Me. It was shortly after I started using the service back in 2022, and they sent me their first privacy report. I have since gotten eight others, and it contained some shocking information. They had removed my data from 56 separate data brokers, that this had included 133 separate records, including 621 individual pieces of personal information. Uh, The data broker with the most information about me was a company I'd never heard of called People by Name. And here's the thing. Since then, every couple of months, I've gotten another privacy report from Delete Me, and it always contains more information that they have removed from the data brokers about me. In the second report, they informed me they had removed my stuff from 41 data brokers and that the one with the most information about me was called HLEC. I have no idea what HLEC is. So the other day, I got my latest report and it includes 15 more data brokers with my personal information, 113 pieces of personally identifiable information, Big culprit this time is something called My Life. Well, I want to tell you that they don't have My Life anymore. And that is why I recommend Delete Me. As this little anecdote shows, there's a lot of my data out there. And these companies keep acquiring it and making it available to anybody who can pay. And I have uh, slept a little bit more easily ever since I found a solution to this problem. And I want to stress, as I do every time, that I started using this before Delete Me started advertising with Lawfare. Delete Me finds and removes any personal information you don't want online, and it makes sure it stays off. And that's the point of this little story, that you know they keep coming back. You can get it removed once, but they'll put it back. And then Delete Me comes and takes it off again. It's a subscription service that removes your personal information from the largest people search databases on the web and in the process helps prevent potential identity theft, doxing, and phishing scams. 
Delete Me sends you regular personalized privacy reports, just like the ones I've been describing, showing what info they found where, where they found it, and what they removed. And critically, as this story reflects, it isn't just a one-time service. It's always working for you, constantly monitoring and removing the personal information you don't want on the internet. It does all the hard work of wiping you and your family's personal information off the web. Data brokers hate Delete Me, which is why I like it. Your profile is no longer theirs to sell. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me, now at a special discount for our listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and use promo code LAWFARE20 at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash LAWFARE20 and enter code LAWFARE20 at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash LAWFARE20, code LAWFARE20. So I want to turn our attention uh, to the creation of what we came to know as the Internet Research Agency. For those listeners who may not be as familiar, could you remind us of what the Internet Research Agency is and, and what it did and continues to do? Yeah, so the, the first reports about uh, you know, so-called troll farms came about in early 2012, uh, where some leaked emails indicated that the pro-Putin youth group, which was called Nashi or ours, uh, were actually paying decent money for people to post commentary on blogs and, and YouTube videos in defense of the Kremlin, in support of the then candidate and current Moscow mayor, Sergei Sabyanin, and of course, discrediting political oppositionists like Alexei Navalny, Ilya Yashin and Boris Nemtsov. Incidentally, the former two are, are currently in prison. Uh, the latter was murdered three years later on Red Square. Uh, so these trolls kind of pioneered the art of overwhelming the comment sections of web pages and blogs and message boards with content to create the impression of organic support where it didn't actually exist. So this highlights a very important point, however, that I think we want to underscore that while certainly the average paid troll probably understands that this is fake, phony, and cynical online, I think it's fair to conclude that many at the highest levels of the Kremlin who are probably less familiar with the workings of the internet assume that this kind of manipulation is simply how the digital media environment actually works. They see, like their Soviet predecessors, that any process that is not controlled by them is inherently, by necessity, being likely controlled by an adversary. And their historical experience or involvement in this kind of reality-shaping enterprise has really given them no reason to conclude otherwise. So this domestic-focused tradecraft was easily redirected in the couple of years following toward the democratic movement in Kyiv uh, throughout and after the Maidan protests, directed towards the MH17 shootdown in 2014, certainly as we, we all know, towards the US presidential election cycles in 2016 and onward, toward the origins of COVID, 
and any other themes as directed by their now openly acknowledged supervisor, uh, Yevgeny Prigozhin. But certainly the IRA or Cyberfront Z or whichever the latest iteration is, is not the only entity that in, is engaged in this kind of information confrontation, as, as the Russians call it. You certainly have the Russian security and intelligence services engaged in trying to shape global perceptions of various developments in ways that are favorable to Russia. And even RT, for example, which was founded shortly after Ukraine's Orange Revolution in 2004, which led to the defeat of the, the Kremlin-friendly candidate in Kyiv's presidential election, uh, the head of that channel, Margarita Simonyan, notoriously kind of portrayed the television station's role in a 2012 interview as something akin to the military, a defensive, quote-unquote, information weapon against the entire Western world. A decade later, you now have an almost entrepreneurial and experimental environment where the online and traditional media spaces are primarily viewed as zero-sum arenas to defend whatever version of reality the Kremlin spins on a given day. As we've seen recently, that's often self-contradictory and inconsistent with demonstrable facts. But then again, dealing with objective reality was never the point. Ideological consistency is more an issue of allegiance to the regime than accuracy. And is that all part of how you distinguish in the paper between what you've described as the old KGB model of information security or warfare and the Putin-era model of information warfare. Yeah, I think uh, it's certainly true that the KGB enjoyed a far greater deal of kind of organizational coherence than the more diffuse structure that uh, we see now. For example, the during the KGB days, the, they had an entire directorate that was established in the late 1960s that was dedicated to really maintaining ideological purity in the Soviet system be that suppressing dissent from students or various ethnic groups or religious organizations, families with relatives living abroad, but extended all the way to like uh, really mundane things like who has access to printing presses, typewriters, and photocopiers, and how are those thing technologies being used. Nowadays, these initiatives did not necessarily go away. They were picked up by the KGB successor agencies in you know, the FSB, the GRU, and the SVR, but those organizations are more diffuse, they're less coordinated, they often work in competition with each other, and that fuels a, a lot more latitude and entrepreneurialism in the modern day that would have been subject to a lot more hierarchical oversight in the Soviet era. So I think you see a lot more appetite for risk, a lot more sloppy tradecraft, and a lot more willingness to, frankly, get caught. So from my read of, of research, like the Matrokin archives or Thomas Ridd's active measures, the Putin era just seems far more reactionary and uncoordinated. Um, I would also highlight that the communications environment's also radically different than it was during the KGB era when authorities were far better equipped to hermetically seal off the Soviet information environment. Uh, some of Justin's work, which he can touch on, has outlined that Moscow hasn't been able to keep the same pace in the globally connected digital era. So Otherwise, boring bureaucracies like the telecoms regulator Roskomnadzor have kind of been co-opted into a surveillance or intelligence and law enforcement collection role that the they were never really designed for in the first place. 
So Justin, I believe you touched on this before, but to what extent does more recent Russian national security and information warfare strategy reflect a heightened degree of paranoia on the part of the Kremlin, especially with respect to a concern about an over-reliance on Western technology? That's a that's a good question. It goes back, you know, I mean, many, 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 many years as, as we're talking about here, but uh, for, for Putin's purposes and, and his time in power, I point out a couple key acceleration points, uh, let's call them, during Putin's time in power that are worth mentioning here vis-a-vis this question of, of paranoia and technology uh, and the internet. One is the 2008 Russo-Georgian War, uh, during which Moscow, as many countries do during wartime, controlled access for journalists to the conflict zone in order to control the narrative and to ensure that, uh, try to ensure that people in Russia we're only getting information about the war from uh, state propaganda channels on television, for example. And so you had this effort to limit access to the conflict zone physically. But what ended up happening is you had a bunch of journalists and bloggers and uh, other people in Georgia who were posting all kinds of things online about the war. So the Russian government would say one thing on television and Russians at which point in 2008 had basically completely uncensored access to the internet would pull up a website that had a bunch of pictures and said something completely different. So, and then there were, they launched DDoS attacks to overwhelm and knock Georgian websites offline. Um, But the, the key point here is that the Kremlin walked away from that and said, you know, we've, we've done what we can in this conflict in the physical space to control the narrative, but we need to do more digitally. And so that was one uh, big acceleration point. The next big one was the Arab Spring. And many Western governments and media pundits uh, looked at revolutions uh, in Egypt and elsewhere and said, hey, look, this is great. We see people using Western social media platforms like Twitter to share posts. We see people organizing. We see people looking to topple autocracy and and freed themselves from repression. This is fantastic. This is what the internet brings to the world. And that was a bit reductive, but we're not going to get into that. But unsurprisingly, in Moscow, you had a very different reaction, which is you had Putin and senior officials and advisors, um, many of whom grew up during the paranoid periods that, that Gavin described earlier. They looked and they said, we see people overthrowing regimes, some of which the U.S. doesn't like. We see them doing so in part on a bunch of American technology platforms. And then we see the State Department uh, coming out and talking about how amazing this is. Uh, And so the natural conclusion for those folks in the Kremlin was, well, this internet thing is a threat to regime security, because if it can happen in our near abroad, if it can happen in the Middle East or anywhere else around the world, the same thing can happen in our borders. So um, there were some other events. There were protests in in 2012 when Putin returned to the presidency were another big one, the Snowden leaks. You know, these events sort of snowballed. And around 2012, the Russian government started introducing all of these restrictions on the internet in Russia. 
So you went from uh, an internet, you know, in 2010, 2011, that was super open. That looked very different from the internet in China, which was very controlled at the time. And in the span of a couple of years, the Russian government introduced all these laws, everything from uh, attacking online anonymity to requiring companies to keep data for significant amounts of time so that law enforcement could grab it to laws suppressing online journalism, laws suppressing uh, speech about women's rights or LGBTQ rights. So you had all of these different things pile up and in tandem with this growing conspiratorialism, it's really contributed to a real crackdown on the tech sector and the internet in Russia. So the last thing I would just add here is about sort of the internet isolation piece. As the Kremlin became more paranoid, one idea that started to get discussion uh, around 2014 is when this was first mentioned in a Security Council meeting, is let's figure out how to isolate the internet within Russia from the rest of the world in the event of a security incident. So how do we build an off switch, so to speak, that will keep the internet in Russia functioning, but block all uh, outgoing and incoming traffic in the event somebody's cyber attacking us or we're hit with information or whatever the uh, imagined scenario is in the Kremlin's head. So the Russian government has had a lot of difficulty in doing this. One big reason is the internet in Russia is not as centralized as it is in China. In China, for decades, the government has nationalized infrastructure. It's built out the internet in a much more planned fashion. In Russia, there are over 30,000 unique internet service providers. The companies like AT&T and Verizon that bring internet to your home or office. So just that alone is a bureaucratic nightmare in trying to say, okay, who the heck are all these companies? Where are they located? What infrastructure do they control? Who do we go to there to make them install stuff? So you get into this situation where it's actually a really complex, you know, bureaucratic and technical effort to control the web in Russia. So the Kremlin is certainly pushing for more of that isolation and control, but it's really uh, up in the air right now if they're ever going to get to that level of isolation that they ideally would, would like to have. When we think about the challenges Russia is facing in controlling the online space, do either of you think that these challenges are limiting Russia's ability to control what its own citizens are learning about how the war against Ukraine is actually going? I would say two things. One is that, yes, the Russians have uh, more limits on their ability to control what their citizens see about Ukraine or anything else because they don't have uh, the filtering capabilities that the Chinese government does. Certainly, they've gotten a lot better. There are tons of sites now blocked in Russia, but it's pretty easy to get a VPN and go around it. What I will say, though, is that uh, we often tend, when we talk about internet censorship, to focus just on the digital and forget the very real uh, human dimensions of the internet, because that's exactly where the Russians focus. You know, it doesn't necessarily matter if you're the Russian government, uh, if you can actually block access to a website or not, if you can intimidate people through really broad and wildly and consistently enforced speech laws into not saying anything, if you can harass and intimidate and jail 
uh, technology company employees to get them to take stuff down. If you can create this environment uh, of fear uh, and so, you know, such that you actually shape how people engage with the internet. So there are some limits on uh, the Russian government censorship power because of the tech constraints, but they wield traditional offline coercion really, really effectively in this area. I would only add that I think drawing on some research out of Cambridge, as well as a recent one from the Open Minds Institute that, that uses some public polling, that even in you know occupied Donbass or in Russia proper, where the control over the information space is almost absolute, that doesn't necessarily equate to kind of broad scale adoption of the predominant narratives uh, among the public. Um, and so that's something to keep in mind as well when we think about the the capacity for states to kind of perform this information warfare on adversaries, even in friendlier, more permissive environments, that control doesn't necessarily equate to the kind of, you know, narrative capture among the population that that one might suspect. So I think that's a limitation to bear in mind. How are we to understand the history and dynamics of Russian information warfare doctrine that you've you've both been educating me and our listeners are about as it relates to Ukraine and the you know the conflict the war going on between Russia and Ukraine currently? I think it's certainly become much more apparent over the course of the last year. But I think it's crucial to understand just how much the Kremlin has broadly considered Ukraine and the broader Commonwealth of Independent States like Belarus and Kazakhstan uh, included to be essentially home turf or something akin to like a, a temporarily autonomous province that with enough time and pressure will somehow return to the center as Moscow was called during the Soviet period. As Justin and I have written elsewhere that the Yeltsin administration in the 1990s kind of begrudgingly accepted Ukrainian independence in service of a broader objective of, of securing Russia's own independence from the Soviet Union. And, you know, fast forward, Putin's presidential administration and the FSB, for instance, both have organizational entities dedicated to maintaining sway over former Soviet subjects in much the same way as they view Russia's own federative uh, subjects. So the bombardment of media manipulation and disinformation campaigns and cyber operations against Ukraine kind of mirror that dynamic we talked about it, about the early internet research agency. A part cynical, part sincere presumption that democratizing forces in Ukraine simply must be externally orchestrated, requiring everything in the arsenal to advance that narrative. And this extends to the kind of rhetoric and the lexicon that Moscow uses in talking about Ukraine presently. For example, the phrase special military operation isn't just a wink and a nudge way of declaring war without actually having to own all the implications of a war. It's also a way of casting this war in similar terms as Moscow used in subjugating the separatist Chechnya from uh, in the 1990s, uh, a quote unquote special action that was necessary to defend Russia's territorial integrity. Uh, also, the, the allegations of Nazism that Russian officials and trolls level at Ukrainian leaders on social media and in the press, those aren't simply drawing on the most demeaning terms that they can find. They're a deliberate attempt to draw on one of the few unifying ideas 
that the Kremlin had left after the Soviet collapse. The memory of World War II and the repelling of an invading force is one of those kind of national myths that, that's really unifying. And so calling the Zelensky administration a bunch of Nazis is as much designed to rally Russians around the flag as it is necessarily to demean Kiev on the global stage. You know, I, I would defer to, to, to Justin for his sense, but I think underscoring how central Ukraine is to this idea of national unity within Russia for the Kremlin really gives you a sense of how and why Ukraine has kind of become ground zero for a lot of this information warfare tradecraft over the last, you know, at least since uh, 2004. But I think aspects of it extend even into the, the, the 90s as, as the Kremlin never really accepted Ukraine as a, a fully independent state. So to begin to wrap this up, what do you want analysts and policymakers to take away from your paper? So I think Justin and I are both actively engaged in kind of the, the disinformation space and studying the geopolitics of information. And I think one of the things we agree on is that in the West's collective zeal to counter Moscow's aggression in the information space, we also need to be very cautious about not adopting the, the paradigm uh, about the nature of information that motivates this behavior in the first place, suspecting intentionality behind every problematic narrative or seeing a coordinated influence operation behind every trending hashtag or assuming direct links between foreign influence operations and, and human behavior. There's a complexity to persuasion and consent that's at the heart of democratic discourse that I think suffers if we oversimplify cause and effect in that way. And so I think we have to find a way to defend democracy against that kind of cynicism without ourselves inadvertently becoming deeply cynical about information. The war in Ukraine is a good reminder that manipulating human consciousness at scale or bending reality to your will is no easy task. And so let's not give Russia more credit than it's owed in the information domain simply because their intentions and tradecraft are on such vivid and cartoonish display. And in that regard, I think Russian information warfare signals a lot more insecurity and perceived weakness than it does capability or strength. The one thing I would add to what Gavin said is there have been plenty of analyses of Russian information warfare that uh, in some ways, hyperfixate on a single document or a single speech, uh, and that's not to say that you know there aren't a few really important speeches or documents. But you know, an article written in in 2013 by Valery uh, Gerasimov uh, in Russia is one. Right for a while, it was pointed to as the Gerasimov doctrine when it's not in fact a doctrine. So you sometimes get this this analysis phenomenon where. You know, people focus on one article and sort of say, this is how Russia thinks about uh, information warfare. And so one thing I think Gavin and I really tried to do in this piece is look at a number of different documents and articles and speeches and events and really show that in some ways it's a boundless concept. As Gavin said, it's a very conspiratorial and, and paranoid and, you know, defensive concept. But you can't really bottle it into a single sentence or a single paragraph even. But, um, and, I, and I would just add to that, right, again, underscoring, the Kremlin really does think this way. Uh, when 
Putin gets up and says the U.S. is constantly interfering in Russian politics when he says that Hillary Clinton financed uh, protests against his return to the presidency, when he says that, you know, Facebook is a terrorist organization and YouTube is engaged in information war against Russia. It's not just propaganda. And yes, the Russians get propaganda value out of those kinds of inflammatory statements that get, you know, broadcast all over the place, but they really do, you know, think that that really is a sincere perception. And that matters because if you're trying to understand how the Russians think about this, it matters, but it also matters in designing our responses. And, you know, I think back, I had a conversation among others with some, some special operations folks after the revelations came out about 2016 uh, election interference. And some of them were very gung-ho about all the different things we should do back to Russia. But the fact remains, you know, this isn't a scenario where uh, we call it escalation. We hit the Russians back. The Russians see it as tit for tat. The Russians already think the U.S. is interfering in politics for all the reasons we said, for open information, because of the internet, because of Western tech platforms. So, you know, anything we do could be seen as further escalation. And, you know, when we're thinking about how to combat information operations in the years to come, that's really a a central consideration to make. Thank you both so much for joining me. Thank you for having us. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. You can get ad-free versions of this and other Lawfare podcasts by becoming a Lawfare material supporter at patreon.com slash lawfare. You'll also get access to special events and other content available only to our supporters. Please rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Look out for our other podcasts, including Rational Security, Chatter, Allies, and The Aftermath our latest Lawfare Presents podcast series on the government's response to January 6th. Check out our written work at lawfareblog.com. The podcast is edited by Jen Patya Howell and your audio engineer this episode was Noam Osband of Goat Rodeo. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. As always, thank you for listening.